My name is Asia Simpson, and I'm a graduate of the New School's Journalism and Design program. So I was excited when WNSR approached me to interview President Dwight McBride. We spoke on March 4th, and for a very busy man, he gave the impression of having all the time in the world to talk about a challenging year, his vision for the university, and the influence the writer James Baldwin has had on his life and leadership. Here he is. How are you doing, first and foremost? Um, good. It's been a... Um... It's been a really busy week, but I'll mm-hmm. say that the weeks uh, since the new year have been busy in a much more forward-looking and positive and optimistic way. And that's yeah. been exciting, you know, to really be doing work that um, that's forward-looking, thinking about the future of the institution and not, not just all of it mired in uh, some of the work of crisis that we've all been working through as, a, as an institution, as a nation, as a sector. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it feels good. That's great. Um, so I guess we just want to kind of get like a sense of how, you know, this role has changed and developed and how it started, um, how you want to see it go in the future. So the past, present and future. Um, so I'll just start with the first question. How did you conceive your role at the new school when you first considered the job? And aside from the ongoing pandemic, how has your role changed most dramatically in the past year? Yeah, it's such a um, it's such a good question. I for me, it's the, the first part of the question is the easiest part to answer. Uh, what attracted me to the new school was the incredible, just storied past of this institution, um, a place that's really has a history of being committed to progressive education, mm-hmm. um, a place where issues of social justice um, really take a front seat and they're almost the the foundation on which we build and that's not you know something that you take for a given at every university and also the commitment to the to broad access to a new school education Uh, we have limitations unfortunately on that front and there's a lot of good work to be done i think both uh, philanthropically uh, and in other ways to, to continue to make a new school education even more accessible. And that, that's work that excites me and work that uh, appealed to me. So when I saw uh, and was first contacted about the new schools, uh, the presidency at the new school, mm-hmm. it was, I was immediately intrigued. And uh, I was not someone who was interested in being a, a president at any institution in fact, I wasn't even altogether sure I wanted to be a university president, <laughs> but an opportunity to lead an institution that is as unique as the new school with its particular uh, history was one that really intrigued me. So that that was the, the initial hook for me. The values of the place resonate with me um, and my own life experience. I feel like it's a place that um, whose story I can tell and uh, from an authentic and genuine place. And much of my research and scholarship also are engaged with the, what the values of the institution are. I'd say that the, the original opportunities haven't really changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really saw those as an opportunity to really create a much stronger and more holistic undergraduate student experience. Um, one of the things that I've learned and even had read about prior to my arrival, official arrival at the new school, was the need for us to, to really create a stronger sense of community and a, a stronger culture of service for our students at the new school. And that's something that, again, worked that appealed to me. 
I um, have some experience with that. I know how that's how important that can be and how important to student retention and success that can be. Um, so that was interesting to me. And that's work I still want, uh, I think, to do. And I think we're uh, embarking on pieces of that in different ways now uh, mm -hmm. already. Uh, the other piece that was interesting to me was graduate education. Um, there is a strong history of PhD education, particularly here at the New School. It's an area that I care about. I've spent a lot of my career as a graduate dean and thinking about PhD uh, students and the kinds of uh, contributions that they can make in a society, uh, even beyond the academy. And I loved the opportunity to think about how that experience might also be able to benefit and strengthen PhD programs and support for PhD students at the new school. How to create a more inclusive version of the new school was also important uh, and interesting to me. And it was a place where, while we have a student population, undergraduate population, where we've done you know, fairly well, we still have work to do, but an undergraduate population where we've done fairly well in terms of creating more diversity, uh, both in terms of international diversity, in terms of racial diversity, in terms of income um, diversity across our students. We have work to do in the, in the graduate uh, area of our programs. And we certainly have a lot of work to do among our faculty to, uh, to make our faculty more diverse. And, mm -hmm. and I, that was work also that appealed to me that I had some experience with. And, and I thought, those are things I want to be doing. That's work I want to be engaged in, work I would enjoy spending time uh, really digging in with an institution and creating and crafting a strategy and a plan to achieve those goals. So I don't think that work has changed as much as when I arrived, the job I accepted in October, 2019 <laughs> was a very different job than the one I walked into, you know, in early April when I, um, when I started here at the new school, the world had shifted, the pandemic had really changed the landscape in any number of ways, not just for us, but for higher ed, for the country, for the world. Yeah. And so the priorities had to not be shifted. They just had to be delayed, I would say. And we were thrust into, in some ways, crisis management, really looking at how we protect the future of the institution, how we deal with um, the financial impact that was already becoming apparent uh, from the pandemic. And that became the most immediate work. So I wouldn't even call it a beginning, I think in many ways I got, a, I entered in a moment of crisis and we've been in crisis management mode uh, for months. And I feel like now we're beginning to turn the corner where we're starting to think again about some of those original goals, the future and what we wanna be doing, who we wanna be in the next five to 10 years and beginning to set ourselves up for the planning uh, work that I think will be really important to get us there. Right. Speaking of, can you comment on the most recent update about opening in the fall? How did that all kind of happen? Well, um, as you can imagine, um, we've been uh, thinking a lot uh, and planning a lot. There was a lot of planning that went into closing the campus prior to my arrival. And in some ways, closing the campus uh, may have been an easier set of steps then reopening uh, the campus. Right. So um, right now we're doing everything that we possibly can to avail ourselves to as much information and data as possible, both looking at what our peers are doing, making sure that we are following the current uh, public health guidance, 
Um, we've been consulting with epidemiologists um, and talking uh, with them about the particulars of our situation being a, an urban institution in a densely populated area with transportation challenges that are different than a rural campus, right? And thinking about what it will mean to have the proper PPE and cleaning protocols, testing protocols in place to protect our community. And we've been following, of course, the uh, like everyone else has, the course of vaccinations, which uh, we have high hope, higher hopes now for, that we will have a significant uh, portion of our population vaccinated by this summer. So all of those things constitute the variables of consideration for us. So what we're, we decided is that it's really important if we can to first start with bringing as much teaching and learning back to campus, first and foremost, and then the things that directly support teaching and learning. So that's the work uh, that we're going to begin with uh, from there. I think we're all going to begin, we'll be on a learning curve this fall as well. The fall will be another uh, experiment for us. And as we learn more, uh, we'll, I think, be able to make some decisions about how and who uh, beyond the first line of teaching and learning functions, what other functions then it makes sense to return to campus, what functions it may make sense to keep off campus, what functions it may make sense to have a hybrid version of. Mm-hmm. So fall is going to be more learning for us too. Right. And part of the reason we don't want to bring everyone back at once is also we want to have some space and some room uh, not to have the campus also be too crowded too quickly. So I'm very hopeful about our plans for the fall. Uh, We also said that we will either reconfirm or shift those um, in early June. But if things continue to go at the pace which they currently are uh, with vaccinations, more ready availability of quick testing, we feel confident that we'll be able to at least reintroduce most of our teaching and learning functions on campus. Yeah, that's great. So excited. It will be great. And I have to say, no one will be more excited than me. I'm sure. On campus. <laughs> right. For the I, first time. <laughs> first time in some ways. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so what do you think has been like the most difficult decisions you've had to make thus far, including, you know, the pandemic, including pre-pandemic, like, and then I guess post-pandemic, whatever yeah. that looks like, you know. You expect that when you first become um, a university president that, you know, there is a kind of traditional honeymoon period, right? Where you, you know, you spend time on campus, you spend time visiting with different groups of people on campus, seeing students, seeing faculty, seeing staff in large groups, small groups, just getting to know the place and the people and and the spaces. And then six months in or so, um, people start to look to you to have some thoughts about what your plans are, what you, you know, once you've listened and learned a great deal. And, um, and so that's not exactly how it unfolded for me, but I, uh, I will say that because of the, um, the planning um, that was necessitated in, uh, by the pandemic, it certainly accelerated my education about the new school, at least in one way, um, not so much in the personal and social ways, of getting to know people, but really having to dig into the particulars, the business of the institution, the finances, our structures, 
our needs. It was a rapid education. Mm -hmm. um, and so I will say that for me, one of the things that I uh, feel like uh, was, you know, if anything, if I'm grateful to the pandemic for anything, it is because it accelerated my education. Mm -hmm. But I do, I long for the opportunity to be able to actually get to know people in the real world, uh, because I don't think you really know a campus until you really know the people that make up the place. And while Zoom is certainly, it's better than having nothing, yeah. uh, it's not quite the same. And yeah. so I am really looking forward to being able to spend some time getting to know my new academic home, my new academic community in a more real world way, uh, in an on the ground way, uh, in an embodied way. <laughs> and that is probably the thing I'm most looking forward to. And I think that also is an important element of being able to tell the story of a place, right? Because as president, one of the things people look to you for is to be able to, to be an advocate for the institution, to be an ambassador, someone who yeah. can help to be a fundraiser, a, a, a partner builder, a, you know, someone who is telling the story of the institution and making the case for why we're important. And one of the ways that you do that is through learning a place and certainly learning the data and the information and having the facts at your fingertips, but the, the human stories of people's experiences. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, the way we began, uh, my asking you later, I'd love at some point to hear your story about your experience in this, in this program that you completed at, uh, at Lang. Because part of the, hearing the story is something that I can, one, it, it embeds that knowledge for me. It, it's something I can use. It's anecdotal, it's narrative. It's something that people can carry with them. And so I really look forward to digging into that first and foremost and spending time with as many of the core constituencies of the campus as I can. And by that, I mean faculty, students, staff, but also our alumni. I had really hoped that in these early months, we were planning even to do some regional events where I got to go mm -hmm. and visit with alums in different parts of the country and, and even to visit our campus in Paris and to think about how we engage uh, more of our alumni in China where we have a number of alums now. And, but none of that's been able to happen yet. But again, I am excited about returning to that work uh, as well. Right. But some of the hard decisions that had to happen Early on, I mean, you've read about a number of these too and are aware of many of them, I'm sure, but we had to make challenging decisions to really protect uh, the financial viability and future of the institution. And that involved things that no president wants to have to do, um, mm -hmm. let alone in, in, your, in the first days of your presidency. I mean, I was literally right. on day eight of my presidency when uh, oh. we had to announce our first set of short-term cash preservation measures where we froze hiring, we reduced salaries, we paused retirement contributions, we deferred all of our capital expenditures, we looked at our real estate portfolio to reassess our leases and our, our real estate holdings for what savings there might be there, we drew down our endowment, and we did all of those things uh, in advance of then having to, of course, uh, reduce staff as well, which mm -hmm. is painful and difficult and 
challenging uh, and something that's rare in higher ed. But in this instance, almost everything we've done this year, other institutions have had to do a version of as well. It's, this has hit our sector hard. And in part, it's hit us hard because fundamentally, right, we are a business that relies on gathering, right? That's at the mm -hmm. center of what we do in higher ed. We come together, we gather for classes, seminars, workshops, lectures. We gather for public programs. And when we invite outside speakers, we gather for receptions and dinners. And so it's a concerts, right? I mean, just you name it. We, it's a culture about bringing highly trained faculty together with highly enthusiastic and talented learners in groups, large and small. And so this pandemic really, it cut at the heart of who we are as a sector. So I think there's few, few industries that have been as impacted as higher ed has been by, by the mm -hmm. pandemic. Yeah. And I mean, you know, despite everything that's happened, we have survived as an institution. Yes, um, we have. So what do you think has contributed to that endurance? There was an article in the Chronicle recently uh, that actually referenced and talked about this. I mean, I'm sorry, in the Chronicle of Higher Education. It talked about how there were all of these doom and gloom scenarios about institutions and institutional closures, et cetera. In fact, you may or may not know, we were on a list early on, and it was one of the first things I got greeted with in the early weeks of my presidency. Scott um, Galloway, the economist at uh, NYU, had published a list of institutions that he said through this crisis, he had done an analysis, institutions that would survive, ones that would thrive, and I think mm -hmm. ones that would struggle, and then ones that were not going to make it. And we were on the list of those that were not going to make it. We oh, wow. had very good company, mind you. There were a lot of other strong institutions uh, that were on that list. But you know, you arrive as a new president and you see your institution on a, on a list of places predicted to fail as a result of the pandemic. But that hasn't been our story. And mm -hmm. while there have been institutions uh, during this time that have closed, and I think there will certainly be others to be sure, just from what I'm following in the sector, but the numbers have not been nearly as high as anyone anticipated. And I think a part of that is that higher ed is, as an institution is, really resilient. And I think, particularly when I think about the new school uh, as a place, I mean, this is a place born in many ways out of crisis, right? And we've weathered a lot uh, and we've been shaped by periods of challenge uh, over time and pretty dramatic change as well. So I think there's something about uh, our adaptability and our resilience that's built into our DNA especially. And I think that that's a huge advantage for us. We're, this is not a place that's afraid to be different. It's not a place that's afraid to innovate and to think about how we need to evolve to meet learners where they are, to meet the needs of learners uh, of today, to revise and understand how uh, our social justice mission and our commitment to progressive education uh, has evolved over time as politics have evolved. I mean, what does it mean to be a, an institution committed to those concepts today, right? To those mm -hmm. values today. And I think that's a part of the question that 
were always asking at the new school. You know, there was a time when we were, uh, and we still do this, uh, we were rescuing scholars who are fleeing from repressive regimes, right? Where academic freedom uh, is really under threat. We continue to do that. But there are also other uh, ways in, in which we are doing important work in communities and in partnership, whether that's in prisons, whether that's with the city, working on what it is to have sustainable futures for city. I mean, it's, I marvel at the level of engagement that this institution has with the world around us, with our community. And I think that we actually have something that is unique and special to offer in the context of the landscape of higher education. And mm -hmm. I think uh, that's a huge part of what, for me, is important uh, as someone who I already feel committed to this institution to the extent that I want to I want to fight tooth and nail uh, to make sure that we're around representing the values that are important and have been important to us and to our founders. I want to I want us to be around doing that another hundred for another hundred years. And that's yeah. how I think about, you know, the decisions that we take now have to be ones that position us well for us for a sustainable future. Yeah. Um, and so we only have a couple of minutes left, but I just want to touch on the fact that you're a Baldwin scholar. So are there elements in James Baldwin's life and writings that you turn to to help with the leadership role? All the time. We could do a whole interview just on this. But <laughs> let, let me say um, this. I often think about Baldwin for um, the ways in which he was fiercely committed to his principles. And he did not readily ascribe to, uh, to boxes, even to identity formations that tried to contain, right? Him, his thinking, his art. And he was doing things in the late 1950s that were absolutely groundbreaking. Uh, when you just think about what it is for a Black openly gay writer to produce a book after you've written Go Tell It on the Mountain, right? Mm -hmm. To produce a book that is set in Giovanni's room, that is set in another country, in Paris, right? Mm -hmm. That has no Black characters and that is exploring the bisexuality of the central character through the lens of his American identity, right? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I am blown away by that, right? So, and in some ways, Ball, he was ahead of his time. He was, and, yeah. he, and literary criticism of the time, African-American literary criticism didn't know what to do with him didn't know what to do with that book. In fact, the, the critical record shows that when people talk about, and for many years, when people talked about Giovanni's room, it was kind of seen as uh, a digression, right? Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, we do, go tell it on the mountain, we do another country and we move on through the rest of the corpus. And we just kind of, that was just a digression, right? right. So I think that he was so far ahead of his time and pushing our thinking about the categories and asking us and inviting us to understand the central tenet of what it is 
to love each other across boundaries. Mm-hmm. Whether that's sexuality, whether it's race, whether it's nation, he explores all of it, class, right? Mm-hmm. What is it to really profoundly love another person across boundaries? And so for me, that's the lesson of his work, whether it's in his fiction or even in the essays, which people often overlook, but even in the essays, it is always coming back to a radical notion of what it means to love each other, right? Mm -hmm. Whether he's talking about race and how white people can't really uh, come to terms with who they are and understand and love themselves until they can really come to terms with what they've done and how they view Mm -hmm. Black people, right? Mm -hmm. The lessons from Baldwin, and I actually uh, return to him again and again and again. I quote him often, use him often in speeches. (laughs) And, And I love Eddie Gloud's new book, which I'll give a shout out to. His new book, Begin Again, is so rich because it also takes, again, another central tenet and concept of Baldwin's, and that is this idea that life is really an endless stage of these beginnings where you start down a road of doing a certain kind of work. One is radically disappointed with what the, you know, what your nation, your country ends up doing and not doing and and not fulfilling its promise of freedom and equality. And, And you have to find the courage every time to begin again and not to lose hope, right? And that for me, uh, Eddie, reading that, reading Eddie's book, especially in, in, in the fall, was extremely important because uh, I have to say, I mean, this was a challenging time on a personal level for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, one mm-hmm. of the most challenging times I'm sure uh, that I will experience in my life. And it was incredibly important to have that message this past summer in that book, also a courtesy of Baldwin, filtered through Eddie Gloud, of how important it is to find uh, the strength, the will, and the love, ultimately, right, for humanity, for our fellow man, fellow woman, to be able to have the courage and to begin again. Right. Uh, and so I, I, I return to him often. I, I suspect I will for the rest of my days. And I, I, I find that uh, he's such a rich, rich writer, rich thinker, um, and has mined human experience to a level that there's so many things that he speaks to that it's hard not to invoke him uh, again and again. Yeah. I think that's a really, really beautiful way to end this interview. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. I am just got to say for myself, like, so happy that the new school has somebody like you. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really excited to see what you do with the institution and how things change and evolve and really excited for you guys to get back on campus. I hope that all goes well. So Aja, I really appreciate it. Maybe uh, a year from now, uh, when we can do a version of this in my office together, yeah. I'd like that. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, I'd love to come back. Well, I tell you, it uh, it was a pleasure um, to be able to chat with you. And I, um, it's, it's nice to have the space now to be able to 
with a little bit of distance to reflect on some of what this last year has been. Because it, 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 at some point, I want to sit down and actually commit some of this to paper because it's, mm. it's just been a rich year of a lot of experiences that I also want to make sure that I mine right for the important lessons uh, that there are there. And I, I just am, I'm grateful. So I'm grateful for this opportunity as well. So thank you. Thank you so much, President McBride.